Coming up on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast, sarcoidosis by the numbers, a new study from UCLA. They wanted kind of a state-of-the-art of what's going on with pulmonary sarcoidosis. Dr. John Belperio studied all the studies, well, many of them, to drill down to where we are in the fight against sarcoidosis. And these toxins typically are made up to kill bacteria, but when they're confused, don't know what they're doing, those toxins start to actually damage the lung. And if left unchecked, highly activated for a long time, over years, it can definitely lead to deterioration of lung function, his research and what it shows next on the FSR Sark Fighter Podcast. This is the Sark Fighter Podcast, living with sarcoidosis and other rare diseases. Here's your host, John Carlin. Welcome, happy 2023, as we begin episode 78 of the FSR, Sark Fighter Podcast, brought to you in part this time by Kind Event Sciences. Kind Event Sciences is researching a potential new drug for sarcoidosis called nemilumab, which inhibits one of the key proteins believed responsible for granuloma formation and persistence in sarcoidosis. I would invite you to listen to episode 69 of the FSR Sark Fighter podcast as Kind Event CEO Bill Gearhart and the Director of Patient Advocacy, Rainey Rogers, discuss the status of nemilumab and how you, as a sarcoidosis patient, can participate in the Phase 2 clinical trial called Resolve Lung. And there will be a link in the show notes if you'd like more information. Now, I do have this message from the folks at FSR. The question is, how can you make an impact in the sarcoidosis community? You might be wondering, how can you help? What can you do? Well, there's a big opportunity right now as I speak and here in early 2023. The Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research invites you to join a team of sarcoidosis leaders in your particular area because FSR is seeking individuals who've been impacted by sarcoidosis to work with the newly launched FSR Global Sarcoidosis Clinic Alliance. You've heard us talk about that here on the podcast. I've had the leadership of FSR talking about it. It's an alliance of hospitals and clinics all around the country and eventually around the world that have been designated as sarcoidosis clinics by FSR. And at each clinic, volunteers can apply to become community outreach leaders who then work together to share their sarcoidosis stories with the public in order basically to empower others and raise awareness. Or you could apply alternatively to be something called a support group leader, and you would be working in teams of two to facilitate in-person support group meetings at these FSR Clinic Alliance member locations. So if that sounds interesting to you, you can learn more by visiting the FSR website. That's stopsarcoidosis.org slash GSCA dash leaders. And there will be a link for that in the show notes as well. So if you've been looking for a chance to volunteer, if you've been thinking, you know, I need to do something to give back and you're looking for your 
maybe New Year's resolution for 2023, what a great idea. Step up and be either a community outreach leader or a support group leader somewhere in the FSR Global Sarcoidosis Clinic Alliance. Okay, well, you know my drill here. If you've listened to the podcast before, if you're brand new, well, welcome. Uh, but I do the podcast because I want to offer my fellow SARC fighters hope and to help you connect with other SARC patients. Even if you just listen to them here on the podcast, hear their stories, kind of figure out what's going on with sarcoidosis, how it affects their lives, see if that parallels with what you're experiencing, and hopefully it'll help you understand what you're up against, what you need to overcome, whether it's the disease, the effects of the medicine, or both, or maybe you're a, a caretaker. Maybe your job is to take care of someone with sarcoidosis, and you're trying to figure out how you know how do other people handle this. So, um that's, that's what we do here on the podcast. We just kind of take a look at sarcoidosis. We hold it up to the light, and we try to look at it from every possible angle. And hopefully, uh, if we don't hit it on this podcast, we've already hit it on a previous episode or maybe an upcoming episode. But I like to think of this as a place where you can come and get the answers that you're looking for. Now, the medical community is perhaps the best place to look for hope these days, obviously, as researchers and physicians are doing their very best to find newer, more effective treatments for sarcoidosis. And they are also obviously in the best position to shine a light on where we are right now as we look at the disease objectively here in the beginning of 2023. So where are we versus where do we want to be? Has there actually been any progress? And by the way, yes, there has. Okay, then where is that progress? How, how serious is sarcoidosis? Is it, is it getting worse, as in more people coming down with sarcoidosis? Or uh, is the number pretty much the same as it's always been? Uh, are people dying from sarcoidosis? And, and the answer, unfortunately, is yes. And well, then what kind of numbers? How many? And how does that, again, compare to historic norms. Well, today's guest is Dr. John Belperio of UCLA, and he'll be talking about the deep dive that he recently completed that gives us a solid view of sarcoidosis from 20,000 feet. You know, so you, you look down at sarcoidosis from way up in the sky like you're an astronaut on the moon or in the space station, you're looking back at Earth and you get all this perspective because you can see everything at once, right? So this is kind of a big picture look. And that is coming up here in, in just a few minutes. Uh, now, I will tell you that in the previous episode, I talked with doctors Christian Escoli and Kristen Vatz at the University of Illinois, Chicago, about the effectiveness of COVID vaccines for people with sarcoidosis. And they really, they got right down into it at the molecular level and they found essentially, this is the 20,000 foot version again, they found that the vaccines work, but they work differently in the bodies of those of us with sarcoidosis, but somehow still wound up being effective. And that's important because uh, apparently a lot of vaccines do not work uh, if you're a SARC patient and you get one. And we talked about that, and I, I don't want to say it off the top of my head because I don't remember, but you, you look at you know, your, your tetanus shots, you look at your hepatitis shots, you look at the different vaccines that you get for, for different illnesses, 
and they are varying degrees of effective. So now along comes the pandemic and along comes the COVID vaccines and they wanted to know, okay, do these COVID vaccines work and, and do they work the way you expect them to work once they get in the body? And the answer is they do not work the way you would expect them to work, but somehow they still wound up being effective. That's the bottom line. But if you want to hear them talk about it in greater detail, and I, and I think you'll find it very interesting, and they, and they did it in, in terms the everyday person can understand, go back and listen to the previous episode. But um, I shared with you during that episode that I had come down with COVID for the first time since the pandemic began. And as I'm speaking to you now, it's been probably a week and a half since the symptoms first appeared. And I can tell you that I'm not quite back to normal, but I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, I had a couple of days of fever where I felt like absolute crap. Uh, then I had a couple of more days of just being wiped out and watching TV. Took in a lot of football, a lot of college basketball, which I'm not going to lie, was kind of nice just to have an excuse to sit on the couch, but I wish that I had, had felt better. Um, and now I'm back at work, but there is the, just sort of this lingering feeling of fatigue and being tired, uh, but I am able to function, and and so that's, that's where I am, and hopefully this is the end of it. So uh, since I talked about it on the last episode, I just thought I would give you an update. So here we are now, and it is the beginning of 2023. Um, so we're making New Year's resolutions, that kind of thing. And even those of us with sarcoidosis, I think, probably, you know, need a reset. You know, it's it's a good time to sort of say, okay, uh, how am I going to approach the next 12 months. I, I find it very cathartic to kind of go through that. And I haven't, haven't come down with all of my resolutions yet, but I can tell you that as uh, you've heard me talk a lot about the anti-inflammatory diet, and I've been working with a dietitian off and on, Lindsay, uh, from Nourish by Lindsay, and there's a link in the show notes, and she has really helped guide me through some much healthier eating habits, except that, um, as the year went on, I, uh, I got worse and worse about that, and I can, I can feel it. I can feel it in my body. So uh, I think in January, I, I think I'm, I'm going to give it a reset, um, a cleanse, if you will, which a lot of people who don't have sarcoidosis do. They just say, you know what, I'm going to eat clean. Uh, you've heard of maybe um, no alcohol January. I think there's a more clever name for that. But people just say, uh, you know, I'm going to take the whole month of January, let my body recover. Um, and in my case, I, I've noticed that my legs have been feeling what I call sarky lately, which usually means I've been eating pizza and cookies and foods high in sugar and highly inflammatory foods. And I, you know, I know that I need to stop that. And so, um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to do a little bit of a reset here, uh, and get back to my anti-inflammatory diet, at least through January in 2023. Um, otherwise my goal is to keep on doing as much as, as I can. And, and we talked about this with sarcoidosis. I've, I've, you know, so often a sarc patient comes on the podcast and they will say, I was a highly active person. And then one day I was in the midst of XYZ activity 
and I couldn't do it anymore. I was hiking in the Grand Canyon and I had to sit down and I had no idea what it was. Or I woke up one morning and tried to go to work and passed out in my office because all of a sudden sarcoidosis showed up in my life. And, and those are real examples that, that people have given me here on the podcast. And there's, there's many, many more of them. And then other people have had sarcoidosis and then all of a sudden here comes a flare right? From out of left field. Maybe, maybe they were not even taking medication any longer. They thought they'd kicked it. This could go on for months or years at a time and all of a sudden, boom, it's back. Um, so I am now celebrating five years without a flare. My, my last one was in 2018. And, but that resulted in a very long 2019 where I was on heavy doses of prednisone and a, uh, a chemo drug called cytoxin which I was taking uh, intravenously, and between the two of those things pretty much ruined my 2019, even though the actual flare was in December of 2018. fact of the matter is, is I'm taking some steroid-sparing medications, and it's working for me. So uh, Humira and Imuran, so it's working for me, and let's just uh, hope that everything continues to be that way. So there is hope, and my mantra is get out there and do what you can while you can. So uh, I'm just going to stay on the attack and keep crossing things off my bucket list. All right, let me get back to the study that we'll be talking about today, conducted by Dr. Belpirio, a physician and researcher at UCLA. Basically, he dove into a pile of research that's already been done on pulmonary sarcoidosis patients, their outcomes, and so forth. And and he basically said, all right, when you boil down all of these studies, what do we know that we have? What are the numbers? What are the indications? What are the treatments and the protocols that doctors are and should be following? And what do we know about sarcoidosis? What are the takeaways? And he published all of this in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, in a paper called Diagnosis and Treatment of Pulmonary Sarcoidosis, a review. A uh, couple of findings from his research, and uh, I'm taking this from the summary that you're able to read. If you want to read the whole article, you need to do a subscription to JAMA, and I don't have one, but uh, there is a little bit you can read. Uh, among patients with pulmonary sarcoidosis, the rate of spontaneous remission ranges from 10% to 82%. That seemed like a big range to me. Uh, then it continues, however, lung disease progression occurs in more than 10% of patients and can result in fibrocystic architectural distortion of the lung, which is associated with a mortality rate of 12 to 18% within five years. So people that progress to that condition, 12 to 18% of them pass, uh, they die from sarcoidosis. Overall, the mortality rate he reports for sarcoidosis is approximately 7% within a five-year follow-up period, talking about um, pulmonary sarc. And worldwide, more than 60% of deaths from sarcoidosis are due to pulmonary involvement. And then he says, however, in Japan, more than 70% of deaths from sarcoidosis are due to cardiac involvement. And Japan does seem to be a little bit of an outlier when compared to the rest of the world. And I asked him about that in the interview. So 
Now, I'm not going to lie to you. This research is pointed at other medical professionals, all right? It is for use by other doctors. And if you're a physician, this is all going to mean a lot more to you than if you are a patient or a caregiver or maybe a fundraiser or somebody else in the sarcoidosis space. So if you are on the medical side of sarcoidosis, please read this, as I'm sure it may help inform the way that you treat your patients or the way that you do whatever you do in the sarcoidosis space. I, I'm sure that this that this paper would be uh, would be very helpful to you, and I'm always grateful when somebody is doing something about sarcoidosis in the medical community. But if you are somewhere else in this space, the best thing to do is to listen to this podcast because Dr. Belperio does a great job of breaking it all down in layman's terms. He made it easy for me to understand, and since I'm a patient like you may be, I need it spoon-fed to me in small bites so that I can consume it, but I was able to follow everything he was saying throughout the interview. And there were a couple places where he got a little bit technical, and I went back and asked him a follow-up question to make sure that it was explained in a way that all of us could understand it. So, Dr. John Belperio, UCLA, coming up next here on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast. I feel like a zombie just feeding at stumbling Hi, I hope you're enjoying the Sark Fighter Podcast. You may be wondering, what can I do to help? How can I be a part of the sarcoidosis solution? It's simple. Make a donation to KISS. Kick in to stop sarcoidosis. 100% of the money goes to the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research. Look for a link in the show notes of the Sark Fighter Podcast. Welcome back to the Sark Fighter Podcast, and joining me now is Dr. John Belperio at UCLA, and he has been taking a close look at the effects of sarcoidosis in our general sarcoidosis population. Dr. Welcome. Uh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. You decided to set out and find out exactly what's going on in the sarcoidosis population. Can you talk a little bit about how you went about that? Yeah, so we had an invited review to JAMA, uh, a very good journal, and JAMA asked us really to write something on uh, pulmonary sarcoidosis. So we wrote a review article on diagnosis and treatment of pulmonary sarcoidosis that came out in March 2022 in JAMA Review. Okay, so you they reached out to you and said, "Hey, let's let's get some some new statistics." More yeah, or less? They, they, they wanted kind of a state of the art of what's going on with pulmonary sarcoidosis in 2022-2023. What's the latest? What's the greatest? What can you tell us about sarcoid? How can you educate readers, Ajama, about sarcoidosis? You know, in particular for physicians, you know, when they have a patient that may be suspected of sarcoidosis, how do you work them up? What do you look for? How do you treat them? How do you make the diagnosis? And what do you have to watch out for? What are some of the pitfalls, uh, that type of aspects of uh, clinical sarcoidosis? 
So pretty much when someone is told that they have sarcoidosis, they go right to their computer and they start Googling. And there are uh, there are various versions, uh, most of them not as scientific as yours that are out there. Um, so this is great that this is there. Is this something the average population can access and understand? Or is this mostly for physicians? Yeah. It's it's mostly it's, you know it's written uh, for physicians uh, in particular pulmonologists but also general internists so that when they come across a patient with sarcoidosis that they feel more comfortable with that patient or if they come across a patient with some shortness of breath cough dyspnea on exertion and chest pain to think about sarcoidosis in that differential diagnosis now most of the cases may be you know coronary artery disease, heart failure, COPD, asthma, but also to think about sarcoidosis and how to work that up. And if there are some suspicions based off of maybe a chest X-ray, maybe based off of ongoing symptoms, uh, you know, to, to think about it and uh, get some imaging. And, you know, if the imaging is consistent with the possibility of sarcoidosis, how to work that up. You know, most of these patients do need a, a, a biopsy to truly show that they have sarcoidosis. And then once they have that biopsy, even, even with biopsy proven, what looks like sarcoidosis rule out things that could mimic sarcoidosis that typically are infectious. Uh, like if you're in California, some things that could look like sarcoidosis are coccidiomycosis, an endemic fungus uh, in the West. Or if you're from the Midwest, could be histoplasmosis, uh, you know, or if you're in Peru, can be histoplasmosis. Uh, you want to rule that out. The other thing that can mimic sarcoidosis is tuberculosis and yes. other uh, mycobacteria. So you always got to rule that out because remember, sarcoidosis is an immune mediated disease, right? It's a disease in which uh, the patient's immune system, meaning white blood cells, and what I mean by white blood cells, if you can imagine, like when you get a cut on your hand and it gets infected with a little bacteria, what do you see in that cut? Redness. Well, that redness is made up of white blood cells. And the white blood cells have certain populations, right? They can have neutrophils, lymphocytes, and macrophages. And we'll just leave it, you know, right there. But they're the cells that make up that redness. With, with sarcoidosis, those cells are really hyperactive and very activated, and they get very confused. And for some reason, they start attacking your own body. And for sarcoidosis, 90% of the time, that attack will be in the lungs, be it in the thoracic or, or chest space lymph nodes and or the lung parenchyma. And it gets, they're very angry. And when they're angry, they're spitting out a lot of toxins. Uh, uh, and, and these toxins typically are made up to kill bacteria, but when they're confused, don't know what they're doing, those toxins start to actually damage the lung. And if left unchecked, highly activated for a long time, over years, it can definitely lead to deterioration of lung function. And the patient can go from having a little bit of shortness of breath to a lot of shortness of breath. And to the point where some of these changes can be irreversible. So we want to catch sarcoidosis early in the disease. And if it needs treatment, we want to treat it so patients get better. 
and then usually go into remission and leave and lead great lives. Yeah. One of the things you talked about was making sure that it's not something else. Um, what I have found in, in talking to people here on the podcast is, is that what people tend to overlook is sarcoidosis. They're not looking for sarcoidosis. They ruled everything else out and they said, oh, it must be this thing, sarcoidosis. And, and a lot of the people that have been on here, patients, will have are living in rural areas and their doctors didn't know to look for sarcoidosis. Is that fair? Well, yeah, very fair. You know, sarcoidosis is, uh, you know, somewhat of uh, somewhat of a rare disease. If you take a snapshot in the United States right now, probably, you know, there's anywhere from 150,000 to 300,000 active cases. Now, maybe more because it might be underestimated, as you're saying, it's it's really underdiagnosed. But think about that. Let's say on average about 250,000 cases active in the United States. And typically, I would say new cases per year that, that we find in the United States is anywhere from 25,000 to maybe 50,000 new cases every year of sarcoid uh, come out. So it's it's not, you know, a huge, huge disease that everybody knows about. It's a fairly rare disease that can happen from 30s to 60s, but it should be on the differential, meaning it should be on your mind when anytime somebody's complaining, when you're talking about pulmonary sarcoidosis of shortness of breath, cough, and what we call dyspnea on exertion, which means shortness of breath when you're walking around or trying to run. So you got to keep that in, you know, on your mind, especially, you know, if you have ruled out heart disease, if you have ruled out asthma, COPD, you got to think a little bit about sarcoid, especially if that patient is coming to you between the ages of 30 and 60. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, uh, I speaking on behalf of the people then on the podcast, um, there's just a, a long line of people who went through misdiagnosis after misdiagnosis after misdiagnosis. Now, I don't know that it was always pulmonary um, because I've had folks on here who have cardiac and who have, uh, they have, I'm, I'm going to use the more common language, they have it on their skin. Um, yes. They have neurosarc like I do. So, um, so we, so we see a lot of that. I, you know, I, it took doctors a long time to figure out what was going on with me. And until they did a, a biopsy actually on my spine and they thought they were going to find cancer, that was only, that was when they discovered it was sarcoidosis. So they were not looking for sarcoidosis. So, all right. So you dug in and you looked at, um, if you just want to tell us how many cases did you look at? to arrive at your data, and then I'll ask you what the data is. Sure. So when, when I did this review, what I did is I, I uh, did a, a literature search on something called PubMed, uh, as well as uh, uh, OVID. And I looked online and I typed in the word uh, sarcoidosis and uh, granulomatous disease and pulmonary sarcoidosis. And really what I came up with came up with was about uh, 361 reports, and I fully reviewed those reports, of which I thought 87 uh, were really relevant to what physicians need to know, be it internists uh, to pulmonologists. 
Uh, and of those 87 uh, manuscripts that I read, 71 were what you would call observational studies in which, you know, people looked at sarcoidosis, a bunch of cases over time. Uh, 11 were what we call randomized clinical trials. And so that means is there actually like drug trials? You know, is there a drug? Can it work for sarcoidosis or not? And we did five guidelines, uh, which uh, every few years, there's always some guidelines, be it pulmonary sarcoidosis, neurosarcoidosis, cardiac sarcoidosis, uh, a dermatological or skin sarcoidosis, because we know sarcoidosis, unfortunately, is a systemic disease. You know, it, it, 90% of the times it's in the chest, but it can go to other places, you know, and usually anywhere from 5% to 20%, if not even 30%, but it can go to other organs. And we know the highly uh, organs that it can hit are heart, which can be very dangerous and need immediate prompt treatment to prevent heart failure. And even more importantly, sudden death from arrhythmias, neurosarcoidosis, you know, definitely can occur, you know, as you know, many people can have, but is very treatable, especially when you catch it early, you can melt it away, but usually needs a lot of immunosuppression, at least early on, but that can be tapered over time. And the other big one is ophthalmological sarcoid uh, uh, hitting the eye. You know, so these are things that anywhere from five to 30% of sarcoidosis patients can have that those organs involved. Then you get down to lower levels, two to 5%. You know, you can, you can have, you know, for instance, liver can, can be involved clinically significantly in five to 25% of the cases. Similarly with the spleen, you know, at a much lower percent, the kidneys involved, you know, kidney can be directly involved in sarcoid, pretty rare, but we do know you can get, for instance, hypercalcemia, which can cause kidney stones. And, and, and hypercalcemia can lead to damage of that kidney and even kidney failure. So finding that the patient has sarcoid as a cause, for instance, hypercalcemia is incredibly important to save the kidneys. So, you know, it, it can hit any organ out there. We've, we've seen it uh, in the prostate. We've seen it in the pleural space. We've seen it essentially everywhere. So it's that high clinical suspicion that really helps us find it. And to be honest, the, 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 the biggest ways to find it right initially are on imaging and imaging gives us a hint, be it neurosarcoid, cardiac sarcoid, pulmonary sarcoid, ophthalmological sarcoid. Uh, and then once you have the in imaging, how do you get that diagnosis? Because uh, it's best to actually have a pathological or what we mean by that is a biopsy proof sarcoidosis after you ruled out infectious etiologies. Because remember, with sarcoidosis, you're going to be treating with immunosuppressive therapies. And you're going to try to make those white blood cells that we talked about that are too revved up, that are releasing all those toxins. We're trying to make them much more sleepier. Now, if we make them much more sleepier in tuberculosis or coccidiomycosis or histoplasmosis, you know, if you do that there, that infection is just going to erupt and actually can kill the patient. So we have to be very careful 
to rule out all these other uh, other diseases. And then we say, hey, we have sarcoidosis involved here, and now let's treat. I think it's great that your paper is out there, and hopefully physicians are reading it, and they are more likely to look for sarcoidosis and get to a, a diagnosis more quickly than they uh, than they might have in the past. But like you said, it it can be anywhere. You never know where it's going to show up. And I would say that probably with the exception of you mentioned prostate, every other version of sarcoidosis you just mentioned, I've had somebody on this podcast talking about it. Um, and so we know whether it's spleen, ocular, kidney, you name it. I've I've got friends now that through my association with FSR and the podcast, you know, who are, who are going through every single version of that. Now, I, I want to be somewhat gentle with this, but you did discover that there's a certain number or certain percentage of people who actually die from sarcoidosis. Um, and that number is out there and your study is the latest reflection of that. Can we can we talk about that a little bit? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, look, mortality, unfortunately, is increased uh, in, in sarcoidosis. You know, without a doubt, there's been numerous studies showing that. And that's why it's great to jump on this disease early so we can prevent these mortalities. Uh, you know, but but if you really look at mortality with sarcoidosis, so there was a nice study uh, actually over in Europe uh, uh, that really showed if you look at mortality uh, at five years for patients with sarcoidosis, it's about overall mortality in five years, about 7% as compared to matched control patients, right? Sex match control patients uh, without sarcoidosis, it's about 4%. So there is an increase, almost twofold increase in mortality if you have the underlying disease of sarcoidosis. So you're absolutely right. And you know, what, what do people die of with sarcoidosis? Well, it turns out, you know, most uh, die of pulmonary sarcoidosis. Right. Now, that's the biggest cause of mortality, right? Especially in the U.S. and in Europe, right? If, if you look at that, 60 to 70 percent of those deaths of that 7 percent overall, 60 to 70 percent are due to lung involvement. And that's severe sarcoidosis. And we'll, we'll talk about the different stages uh, of pulmonary sarcoidosis. However, this is everywhere except for Japan. Okay. Right. I noticed Japan, that in Europe. Yeah. Yes. In Japan, patients, and again, this just happens to do, you know, with differences in ethnicity, uh, differences in genetics, differences in environment, all of which, and as well as socioeconomic uh, factors, all can affect how sarcoid reacts in the body. But in Japan, it's very interesting. They have a higher, a much higher rate of cardiac involvement than anywhere else in the world. So mm. most of the deaths, 77% of the deaths in Japan with sarcoidosis are due to cardiac involvement. And in fact, when they get pulmonary involvement, it has a tendency to respond better to immunosuppressive therapy or even without immunosuppressive therapy, get much better 
as compared to uh, all the other parts of the world. Is anybody looking at that and trying to figure out what's going on in Japan? Absolutely. I mean, people are looking at genetics, uh, epigenetics, uh, differences in the way the immune system is work in Japanese populations as compared to these other populations. So that is being looked at. And I do think that's going to be a key factor into finding different pathways that are involved in the development of sarcoidosis. And as we find these new pathways, that will lead to novel treatments or new treatments that actually can treat sarcoidosis, either stop it in its tracks or even better, reverse the disease where you have somebody with either a, an inflamed lung that you can bring that inflammation down to normal or an inflamed heart in which you can bring that inflammation down to normal. You know, we do a decent job of that now with things like prednisone and other glucocorticoids. Uh, and, and a lot of times we use steroid sparing agent uh, such as uh, azathioprine, also known as Imuran or methyltrexate. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the other therapies are anti-tumor necrosis factors, right? Because we know that these granulomas are full of tumor necrosis factor. And that tumor necrosis factor really activates these cells like crazy. So if we can uh, block that tumor necrosis factor, we make all the other cells kind of a little bit more sleepier and the, the body can start to heal itself there. I'm not sure I know what you say when uh, when you're talking about this uh, necrosis factor. Can you explain that? Sure. So tumor necrosis factor is a protein that's uh, found in the body. When it was first discovered, it was actually called cachexia. <laughs> and uh, cachexia kind of means somebody who seems to be malnourished, can't really eat, feels terrible all the time, and really is failing to thrive just because they feel so awful. So, you know, cachexia we used to see in a, in a lot of cancer patients. Well, it turns out with sarcoidosis, it releases this protein uh, that is really cachexia. And now we call it tumor necrosis factor. And the reason is if you take that protein, tumor necrosis factor, and you put it on some cancerous cells, it makes the cancer cells die hence the term necrosis. And that's where we got tumor necrosis factor out. Well, it turns out in sarcoidosis, the, the, the population that, that is most early on, it's, it's, it's a, a population of T cells that come in there, the really small cells. And those small cells seem to be hanging around saying something's wrong here. And they release these, uh, what we call chemotactic uh, mediators or mediators that call in macrophages. And then the macrophages come in. And then the T cells talk to the macrophage and say, hey, something's going on here. Let's get let's get ready to fight. And it really activates the macrophages. And the, the macrophages become really big and activated. And then what they do is the macrophages are talking to one another and they start to say, hey, let's fuse together. To, to prepare to fight and they start fusing together. And then uh, uh, what they create is something called a multinucleated giant cell, which is a really tough cell. And that cell is a fighter 
and it, you know, it's looking for a fight and it's releasing all these toxins. And this is what causes damage, be it to the lung, be it to the heart, be it to the brain uh, or the neurological system, or be it to the eyes anywhere. So uh, tumor necrosis factor really is one of the uh, uh, initiators uh, of really forming these what we call granulomas. And these are typically non-necrotizing, meaning you could see all the cells, there's no dead cells in there. And they're just really there, activated, fighting. Uh, uh, but the problem is they don't know what that cause for the fight is. It isn't a bacteria, at least we don't know of yet, and it's not a virus. However, unfortunately, with, with sarcoidosis, it is somewhat idiopathic. We don't know exactly you know, why this immune system is upregulated and is causing all this damage. Is there a bacteria there? We just haven't found. And there's been some studies saying there are some bacteria that are associated with sarcoidosis, maybe some viruses that are associated, but that's been very loose associations, not very tight. And it may be like other autoimmune diseases. We, we don't know the factors. But there has been some studies with sarcoidosis saying a protein can be released called vimentin in the body, and vimentin can upregulate T cells to attack it, causing an autoimmune disease that, that, that may be involved with sarcoidosis. But these are very premature studies and are being looked at uh, more and more every day in multiple laboratories across the United States, as well as across the world. Yeah, I think the uh, the latest information I have from the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research is that there are now currently 10, um, 10 studies in the field um, that, you know, where they're looking at, at potential new approaches and new treatments to to see if they can figure it out. And, and uh, you know, and I don't want to get too deep into it. No, but, no, I, absolutely. You know, yeah, and there's 10 that are highlighted, but let me tell you, of that 10, there's another a couple hundred actually looking at pathogenesis of sarcoidosis. Every university hospital is really interested in this. Typically, there's usually one or two investigators actively looking at sarcoidosis. I mean, you know, uh, especially for pulmonary medicine, you know, sarcoidosis is one of these diseases that, you know, we've been, you know, trying to figure out what causes it. We've even tried to have new model systems to do in the lab, and that's been a big problem with sarcoidosis for new me medications. There's no great models to form these granulomas in the lab, uh, but people are working on it. You mm -hmm. know, uh, even, even my own uh, institution. We have multiple people working on this, collecting blood samples, bronchovalvular lavage samples, uh, looking at things in a dish, and in even novel, uh, what we call uh, in vivo rodent models to mimic sarcoidosis. So we can really figure out new drugs to treat this disease. Yeah, yeah. Clinical trials was the word that was not coming. There were ten, oh, yes, ten, yes. Clinical, At least ten, ten clinical trials out trials. right now. Yes, absolutely. That, that that I'm aware of and that FSR is is talking about, and uh, and several of the folks working on that have, um, you know, they've stepped up. They've sponsored this podcast, in fact, and so, um, 
it's uh, it's wonderful to see that happening. So now your day to day life is you are um, are you doing stuff in the lab and seeing patients? Yeah, so I, I, I do both. So, I, you know, I, I see patients. We have this state of the art uh, sarcoidosis clinic at my institution, which is UCLA pulmonary and critical care medicine. Uh, we have a wonderful clinic uh, uh, that really is open five days a week. Uh, for sarcoidosis patients. Uh, so that's one aspect of my job. And also in the lab, uh, we've done uh, studies looking at abnormal proteins in the bronchoalveolar lavage fluid. So that's when we do a bronchoscopy. And for those that don't know what a bronchoscopy is, most people know what a colonoscopy is. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty big tube used for a colonoscopy. With a bronchoscopy, we use a much smaller black tube that goes either in through the mouth or through the nose into the respiratory system. We take a look around. We put a little bit of salty water in, suck that salty water out. And that uh, uh, gives us a lot of the immune cells that, that are involved in sarcoidosis. So we look at proteins, we look at uh, what we call cellular expression patterns to see what's abnormal in sarcoidosis patients as compared to normal patients. And we've been actively working for 20 years on developing an in vivo model system or an animal model system, which actually forms granulomas that looks very similar to uh, human sarcoidosis. It's been an active uh, ongoing uh, problem in our lab for 20 years, but each year we come closer and closer and we think we're on the cusp of having that animal model, but we'll see over the next year if that's true. Well, that's great. Getting that animal model would be a big step forward in terms of, of research. So. Yes. Uh, and I, I've heard multiple researchers at various institutions say that same thing, that you're looking for that. So basically, you're looking for being able to do this with mice. Yes, exactly. Right? And then the beauty of, of doing it with mice is that once you find the abnormal proteins in genes in humans, uh, even though they're abnormal, for instance, very high, uh, you know, even though they're high, it may not translate that blocking that protein or inhibiting that protein really has an effect on sarcoidosis. So if you have, in particular, a mouse model, they're easy to manipulate their genetics. So you can quickly take out a gene and see, does it affect that uh, sarcoid granuloma you're making in the mouse? And if it does, then you know, hey, I got something that probably will work in a human. So if you got a mouse that develops, for instance, beautiful sarcoidosis, and then you knock out a gene, and that sarcoidosis disappears. And I mean, you know, black and white disappears. That's something that really, in my opinion, could lead to an incredibly novel treatment for humans. So I think it's very important, you know, for our lab, but all these labs that, that are involved in sarcoidosis to keep trying to develop these uh, uh, models, be it in a dish or be it, you know, in a mouse, very important for the future of sarcoidosis. So what is your what is your feeling about the, the possibility that we can uh, find a cure for sarcoidosis uh, or find out, you know, a much better situation than we have right now, uh, whether it's on the research side or the patient side? Are, are you optimistic? 
Oh, I'm incredibly optimistic. Research is really moving forward at in, an incredible play, at pace. You know, we know that sarcoidosis has to do with this revved up immune system. And we have some drugs that really work quite nicely. The problem is, is the side effects of the drugs. You can't keep people on high doses of prednisone for a long time because then the benefits you know, start to deteriorate over time and they run into problems in, in, in particular with infections, right? With high blood pressure, diabetes, weight gain, uh, throws their sleep cycle off. So we want other medicines that could work just as well as a high dose of steroids, but without the side effects. So I think with these models that we have, with the ability and, and sarcoidosis patients are wonderful. They're always willing to give, for instance, you know, if we're doing a bronchoscopy, they're always like any leftover bronchoalveolar lavage fluid, please take to your research lab. If there's any extra biopsy material, take to your research lab. Please take an extra five cc's of blood or 10 cc's of blood. So this really leads to some really great cutting edge science where we can do what we call omics. There's something called proteomics where you can look at thousands of proteins. You can look at gene expression, which you can look at thousands, if not millions of genes. You can look at something called epigenetics, which, you know, just changes in that DNA through some kind of methylation processes that really tells you a lot about the landscape of the immune system. So there's these all these cutting edge omics that you can do in humans, find the abnormalities. And then if you have the animal model, you can really translate that to the animal model and see, is it just elevated because it's an epiphenomena that it's elevated and you know it's a signal that something's going on or is it actually causing disease? And with your genetic manipulations in the animal model or in the dish, you'll be able to see, can you tone down those granulomas? And more importantly, can you get rid of them? And I do foresee the future that that's going to be easier and easier to do. Like you said, there's at least 10 active clinical trials, phase one to phase three trials in sarcoidosis. And these are going to lead to better and better medications. Uh, the future for sarcoidosis patients is incredibly bright. And, you know, I think, you know, FSR, as well as the National Institutes of Health, as well as the biotech industry are really trying to find ways to resolve these granulomas. And every day we're coming closer and closer. And I think we are chipping away at that granuloma. And the more we chip away at it, the more we're going to get a cure. We're going to have durable remissions where we don't have to worry about patients coming out of remissions. The future looks incredibly bright for pulmonary sarcoidosis as well as all sarcoidosis, meaning heart, lungs, you know, kidney, liver, neurological system, the eyes, the mouth. It's all going to get better. Yeah, very good. Dr. Belperio, thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast today. Oh, it was, it was wonderful, a pleasure. And, you know, again, I just want to emphasize the future looks bright. Don't give up. Tomorrow is going to be a better day for sarcoidosis patients, for all sarcoidosis patients. Thank you very much. And I had a wonderful time here today. I feel like a zombie. 
Thanks to Dr. Belperio for joining me here on the FSR Sark Fighter podcast. I remind you that you hear this song, little bits of the song throughout uh, the podcast, and that song is called Zombie by Mark Steyer, and he plays in a band called the White Hot Lizards in Alberta, Canada. Mark has sarcoidosis. The story behind those lyrics is back in episode 12, and uh, he's he's one of these, another one of these guys. He's a hockey player. One day he couldn't play. He just didn't have the energy to go, and it turned out it was sarcoidosis. Uh, and so he's had uh, he's had a tough run with it, and it, uh, it made him sit down and write a song about it. And if you ever listen to the entire song uh, I do play it and you listen to those lyrics and man he he nailed it that's all I'm going to say he nailed it I've heard I've heard it over and over but uh, from all of you uh, patients who've been on the the podcast but but he got it right um, speaking of the podcast it comes out every other Monday as I'm speaking today my trusty boxer Dougal is curled up on the chair in my office Google makes my life so much better. Don't forget to follow the FSR Sark Fighter podcast on social media, Facebook and Instagram. I'm also on Peloton as Sark Fighter. I have a cycling blog because I'm a big bicycle rider. It's called Carlin the Cyclist. Very original, I know. <laughs> but there is a section called Cycling with Sarcoidosis. And if you are someone who likes to be outdoors and, and somewhat athletic, whether you're a hiker, a runner, whatever it is you like to do, um, yeah, I think you may find some parallels between what I've gone through trying to ride my bike through all the different various stages of SARC and, and maybe what you're trying to do. The backstory to the founding for the Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research is episode 11 with Andrea and Redding Wilson. They sat down over 20 years ago at their kitchen table and founded FSR. If you're new here and just trying to figure out what SARC is, listen to episode two with Dr. Simon Hart from the UK. It's Sarcoidosis 101, if you will. And then the whole backstory to me and how I got here is episode one. If you want to contact me, send me an email. It's in the show notes, Carlin Agency at gmail.com. I appreciate your interest in the Sark Fighter podcast. It helps me reach more people and grow the show. If you share it on your social media, give it a nice review, whatever whatever you can do to tell people you like what you're hearing here. And uh, if you like it, just, just tell one person. It's January, so officially, Happy New Year. Let's hope that it brings you a year as free as possible from the complications of this disease. And who knows, maybe 12 months from now, I'll be able to report back to you that medical science has made some amazing breakthroughs in the battle against sarcoidosis. That's, that's the end goal at the, at the end of the day. So, Happy New Year. Until next time, keep fighting. Learn to suffer, you feel pain someday. Hey.